Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia, home of the world's greatest artist, TLC, Gladys Knight, India Ari, Indigo Girls, and Hartsfield Atlanta Jackson Airport, the Falcons, and Clark Atlanta University. This is The Bright Side with Technicia, a daily show with real people with real experiences. Well, before that little mishap, of course, I'm Technicia Day, and I'm the host of The Bright Side with Technicia, and I've been doing this for years now, I believe since 2013, and I have so many different guests on from holistic healers, sex traffickers, preachers, pastors, everybody who you could probably possibly think of, out-of-body experiences. I have them on my show, and the reason why, because I feel that there's never enough when it comes to information. It's always room for information, and that's how I see it in the world, always room for information. But I'm glad to be back with you guys. It feels so funny not to be around you as much. Um, how's everyone been? I hope that you have been well. Hope everyone is safe because of these hurricanes that we've been having, so I'm hoping that you are safe and sound and that you didn't have to go through that that tormenting experience. One of the out of the hundred and fifty thousand people that is alive. Hi everyone. Yes, I'm going live as well on Live Me, which is an app on your phone, so I'm doing that as well. And I'm glad to be here with you. I know I've been gone for a minute, but I'm back. Yes, I sure am. But anyhow, let's get down to it, because you know I don't like to do a whole lot of talking. I like to get right on into it. So here with me today is Mark Gober, who is an author whose worldview was turned upside down in late 2016 when he was exposed to world-changing science. After researching extensively, he wrote an end to upside-down thinking to introduce the general public to these cutting-edge ideas, all in an effort to encourage a much-needed global shift in scientific and existential thinking. Mark has long sought answers to life-changing questions. As an undergraduate at Princeton University, he was drawn to astrophysics because he wanted to understand the universe. But because due to commitment as a member of Princeton's Division One tennis team, he decided that astrophysics would be too demanding. So instead of studying the invisible forces that govern the universe, and better, the invisible forces that secretly drive human behavior, getting a degree in psychology, focused on behavioral economics. After college, he explored the university books for fun, but it wasn't until the summer of 2016 that he randomly stumbled across a series of podcasts that exposed him to some radical new ideas. Those ideas put into question the most basic assumptions about who and what we are as human beings. The more he researched, the more he realized 
that he needed to rethink everything that he thought he knew. When he began relating to friends, his research, they told him it changed the way they looked at life. Their lives started to improve. After he heard that multiple times, he realized it was time to share his research with a broader audience through his book and podcast so he could be more, so he could help more people. While when he is a pursuing the world's biggest question, Mark Serge is a partner in Sherpa Technology Group, a firm that advises businesses on mergers and acquisitions and strategies. In recognition for Mark's singular work on understanding the nature of consciousness, Dr. Irvin Laszlo, a two-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee, recently named him as a director at the Laszlo Institute of New Paradigm Research, where Mark serves director of corporate relations. So without further ado, I'd like to bring Mark Gober on. Mark, how are you today? I'm so glad you're here with us. I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Interesting topic that we have in the day. The brain does not create consciousness. Mm. Now, this is something interesting mm-hmm. I would definitely love to know. Tell me, what brought you into the idea of starting to focus on such a topic like this? Well, it started about two years ago when I was listening to podcasts on the topic of health. And what came up was a woman who talked about being able to communicate with deceased people and non-physical beings. These were things that I had never heard of before. So when I heard that podcast, it led me to listen to other podcasts. And the more I listened to different people talk about these things, the more I became interested in understanding what was going on. Were these people just crazy? Were they lying? Was something real? So I decided to actually look at science behind this. And what I discovered was that there was a whole body of actual science from the U.S. government from Princeton University, from the University of Virginia, and way beyond. And it really shifted my worldview the more I researched. Oh, wow. So I know I gave a little bit of introduction to you, but can you tell us exactly what is your personal, professional, educational background exactly? Professionally, I'm a partner at a firm called Sherpa Technology Group. I'm based in Silicon Valley, and we advise technology companies on their business strategy. Prior to that, I worked in investment banking with a large investment bank called UBS in New York during the financial crisis from 2008 to 2010. Prior to that, I was at Princeton University where I studied psychology and I was captain of the tennis team. So that's my educational and professional background. And on the surface, it sounds like it has nothing to do with the topic of consciousness. Right. Now, how did you become interested in this? topics you discuss actually in your book and into upside down thinking? Well, it was kind of my own research and just general curiosity outside of, of my day job at Sherpa Technology Group of, of listening to podcasts and then starting to do research. And the more I learned of, of science that I had never heard of before, the more I realized that I needed to rethink the reality that we're in. And mm-hmm. I became interested in the ideas and realized that Many of these ideas have not really been brought to the mainstream public. So I told, I started to experiment by telling friends about the ideas that I was researching, and the responses were actually very positive. People told me that these ideas, which we'll probably talk about, actually have um, 
comforting implications for how we think about our lives. So people's lives, as I was telling them this information, started to shift in a positive direction. So I said, okay, why don't I try to just put my thoughts on paper because it seems to be having a positive impact. And I ended up writing the book in the summer of 2017 for that purpose. Wow. What was the process like for writing it? Well, I don't think this was a very typical process. I I locked myself in my apartment, basically, in San Francisco over the <laughs> July 4th weekend in 2017. And that year, it was a it was a four-day weekend. So I said, okay, I'm just going to act like I'm an investment banker again, where I worked around the clock, and just see how much I can write. And I ended up finishing more than half of the book in that one weekend. And then over the next few weekends, I finished what I had laid out in my outline. So it, it was over the course of one month that the book was finished, at least the draft of it. Now, I know most probably want to know, we see the topic here, but what is your book about generally, Mark? Okay, so the book looks at what Science Magazine has called the number two question that remains in all of science. And the question is, I'm paraphrasing, is basically how does our brain produce our awareness or our consciousness? And to demonstrate this question, if, if your listeners are, have their hands available, if you can touch your arm, easy to do. You can touch your leg. Very, very easy. Now, if I ask you to touch your mind or touch your awareness, you can't touch it. It's not physical. So this is the question that I'm exploring, which is how does a physical body that you can touch, how does that produce your mind? And what I argue in my book is that the reason that Science Magazine has, and other scientists have not been able to figure out the answer is that the body and the brain do not produce our consciousness, our awareness in the first place. And that instead, our brain is like an antenna receiver or like a filter that is processing our mind, our consciousness, but the consciousness doesn't reside in our bodies, which is a very different perspective than the conventional scientific thinking. Oh, wow. And it's interesting. I, I like the way your topic goes and into upside down thinking. It, oh, man, I guess we all probably end up doing that. But what exactly do you mean by it? Well, so my, my thinking and what I was raised to think academically yes. um, and just I think society, what they teach is that I'll describe the basic process, which says that the universe started about 13.8 billion years ago with something that people call a Big Bang. And this was a process that filled the whole universe with physical material that physicists, they call it matter. Matter is just something you can touch, like atoms. And when you have this big universe with a lot of atoms of matter, you're bound to get interactions between those atoms, and we call that chemistry. When you have enough random chemical reactions in this big universe, you're bound through chance to get a, uh, something that's self-replicating, like DNA. And DNA serves as the basic building block for human beings, and human beings develop brains, and from the brain, we get our mind, we get our consciousness. So that process started with a physical universe, started with matter, and we ended up with consciousness on the other side. Matter, through a brain, creates consciousness. That is the traditional thinking. And in my book, I argue that that thinking is upside down, that consciousness doesn't come at the very end, beginning. 
Wow. See, I'm learning something. I am. I'm learning something new. I'm definitely um, making sure I keep some notes. Um, But, Mark, is there really evidence that we all have telepathic abilities? I mean, when I think of that, I think of Carrie, you know, moving things. But I wouldn't think that we would have that. Or or was that telekinesis that she had? Well, yeah, when the the mind affects matter, that's a form of telekinesis or psychokinesis. But what you're describing is like a type of psychic ability. And what I describe in, in my book, and we'll go through the evidence in a minute, is it, this idea that if consciousness is first, if, if our, this physical world is an experience within a consciousness, and if our brain is almost like an antenna, then it would make mm-hmm. sense possibly that these psychic abilities would be real. And it would also make sense that when the body dies, then the consciousness would not die because the consciousness exists on its own. So your, to your question, is there evidence for any of this? That is my whole book, is going through the evidence for all of these different types of things. And you mentioned telepathy. Telepathy, that's chapter five of my book, and I'll go through a very basic type of study that suggests that we actually all do have telepathic abilities, but they're just very, very subtle. Study goes like this, And, and this study has been done over many decades by different experimenters, and when you combine the results, you end up with an effect that we need statistics to show. Um, and it's called the Gansfeld experiment, G-A-N-Z-F-E-L-D. And when you look at this, there have been some credible studies on this. So you have Bob, we'll call it Bob, he's in one room. And Bob is, is placed into a very relaxed state where he's listening to relaxing music and the experimenters just want him to kind of be meditating. You have Jane in another room and Jane is shown a picture by experimenters. And the experimenters say, Jane, I want you to mentally send an image of what you're looking at to Bob in the other room. So Jane's doing that. She's like trying to telepathically communicate with Bob. Bob is then taken out of his relaxing state and the experimenters say, okay, Bob, there are four pictures in front of you here. One of them is the one that Jane was looking at in the other room. You don't know which one it is. Which one do you think it was? We would expect that Bob would guess correctly one out of four times over the long run because he shouldn't be getting any information from Jane because how could he know? He's not, they're not talking and they're, he's not seeing the picture. But what we find in the studies when you combine all the analysis is that it's not one out of four. It's not 25%. It's closer to 32%. When you run the statistics, is extremely improbable that that is just a chance occurrence which suggests that some information is getting through. And it actually makes sense in our everyday experience because if we were all 100% telepathic, then we would know each other's thoughts 100% of the time, but that's not what happens. Yeah. Instead, it's very it's subtle. Like I think of somebody and then I get a text or I think of them and then they call me and it happens sometimes. Maybe that's the 32% versus 25%. Right. I do agree. We got a little bit, but we. it would be nice to read some people's mind, and you probably run the other way if you could read their mind and be like, wait a minute, you know what? That's, that's okay. I'm I'm very good. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, is there, Mark, is there actually any evidence that we can know the future before it actually happens? A great question. There is a phenomenon that's known as precognition. And this is chapter six of my book, An End to Upside Down Thinking, which talks about the idea that we actually can 
seemingly know the future before it happens. And again, some of the studies are very subtle. In some cases, it's actually more than, it's like very extreme, where a person has a dream about something and then it happens. That's called a precognitive dream. But those are more difficult to study typically. What I'll describe now is a type of study where people's bodies are unconsciously reacting to the future before anyone knows what the future will be. So this is how the study is, goes. And again, it's a very subtle effect. You have to use statistics to show it, but it seems to be like it's happening because there have been a number of credible studies on it. You have, right. a, per, you have a person hooked up to a machine. Their skin is being measured. Mm -hmm. Their eyes are being measured, their brain, their heart, because we know these things. Like if you show someone a violent image, we know from psychology that people's bodies will just respond without even thinking about it. Their bodies naturally have a, a very serious response to, to like a violent picture or an erotic picture. But if we show someone a picture of like a mountain or a river, we know that doesn't really do much to the body because it's not arousing. So what the experimenters have done is, is reversed the procedure where they're measuring the body and then the picture is shown. And this is the kicker, is that nobody knows what kind of picture will be shown because it's randomly generated by a computer. The person is hooked to machinery that's measuring their body, and they're looking at the computer screen, and different pictures are coming up. What, what the experimenters find is that the body, if there's an arousing picture shown, like a violent image, the body seems to be responding to it a few seconds before the picture is shown. Mm. which suggests that it's almost like consciousness is reaching forward in time. And what I'm arguing in, in, in end to upside down thinking is that, like I said, consciousness is first before the, the physical universe and it's beyond space and time. So it would be at least possible that consciousness would like know the future subtly before it happens because it's beyond time. Wow. So is there any more evidence out there, Mark, that you have come across that we can impact physical matter with our mind alone? Yes. Uh, so this is called psychokinesis. And there have been okay. reports of some – It's there have been, some people call it telekinesis. But there have been reports of things like bending spoons with the mind. And I talk about some examples where it's been reported, but it hasn't been studied in a lab. There are some cases where things have been studied, and again, the effects are really, really subtle. The example is it's, it's called a machine that's a random number generator. And basically, this is just a machine that generates a zero or a one in a random fashion. So over time, you end up with 50% ones, 50% zeros, half and half. And I should say these studies were run at Princeton University by the former Dean of Engineering, Dr. Robert John, who's basically a rocket scientist. This lab was existing for almost 30 years. And actually, when I was at Princeton, I didn't even know the lab existed. So these are very credible scientists who ran the studies. The random number generator machines, again, they're spitting out zeros and ones, 50-50, 50% zeros, 50% ones. What people are asked to do in the experiment is you ask a person, hey, I want you to put your mind to the machine and make it produce more ones and zeros, even though you're not touching the machine. I just want you to mentally try to influence it. And what seems to happen, again, when you combine all the results, is that when people do this, they're able to create 
slightly more ones than zeros from the machine. So it's like the mind is having a very, very subtle effect on the way the physical world is operating. Mm. Oh, I hope you guys are catching all this. This is this is deeper. This is not nothing you're gonna get in any class. I've never heard of this before. This <laughs> this is all new to me. No, this is information that is uh not present in your classroom, students. So you getting your you getting the exclusive here. Exclusive information. I'm hoping that you get Mark's book too, which we'll tell you later at the end where to get it. Now, I have had people on talk about near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences. So what are near-death experiences, and why don't you think they are hallucinations? This is another really, really important topic. So I'll start by saying that the near-death experience phenomenon, this has actually been reported for a long time. Plato talked about the near-death experience. The Egyptian Book of the Dead talked about it, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. They talked about this experience that happened when people were like if they got harmed, if they got into a bad accident and they almost died, the people described hovering over their body, seeing things that happened. They described seeing a tunnel, being immersed with unconditional love, experiencing their whole life in a flash, like a life review and judging themselves for how they acted. Sometimes they see deceased relatives or mystical beings. So this very kind of like mystical experience that people describe around the time of death and the big question is, well, why is that happening? Because we know it happens to people, but is it just a hallucination? Is it a delusion? Or are people actually seeing a reality that our eyes typically don't show us? And that's what I've examined in Chapter 9 of an end to upside-down thinking. What, what The conclusion that I come to is that actually these, to me, do not seem to be like hallucinations. But rather, they are showing us a broader picture of the reality that our eyes typically just don't are not able to see. Why have I come to this conclusion? Well, one thing that happens is um, it's called, this is a fancy term, veridical out-of-body experience. And the, the word veridical okay. is in, this, in this context is just meaning that it's verified. So what I mean is the person is hovering over their body. Say someone gets into an accident. They're hovering over their body. And they see things in the room that are verified as later being accurate, but it was during the time that they were, their brain was either off because they were clinically dead or they had a, just a very severe brain, severely damaged brain. That shouldn't be happening if a brain is required to have these types of experiences, and yet people are able to accurately report things from above their body. Wow. Because in my opinion, near-death experience, they don't involve that source, like I think you were talking about, such distortions of of reality. Um, but I think they also have said, too, like near-death studies have um, been shown to discover, like, the existence of a metaphysical um, umbilical cord, connect body with a subtle body, um, I guess, during the out-of-body experience component of the near-death experience? Yeah, uh, so that's a really important point, and I think it's something that I'm hoping that scientists will explore more, like what's the relationship between the body that's in that state of being out of the body versus the state of being in the body, and is there some kind of connection there? I don't think it's that right. well understood, um, and so what I'm hoping is that my book will help stimulate conversation and get more 
important scientists to look at this because it's really, really important. If this is part of the reality that we're in and we're just totally ignoring it, then what else are we missing? Right. I don't think you're alone, though, because you got psychologist John Gills with you, neuropsychiatrist Peter Fenwick. Um, there's others on the same page with this with this theory, and I agree with it, too. It's, it couldn't be a hallucination. This is something something way deeper that you really have to understand. So I'm definitely going to agree with you on that, Mark. You're not alone on this journey whatsoever. But is there <laughs> evidence that our consciousness survives when our physical body actually dies? Well, I'll start with the near-death experience, which is the first yes, hint. Because it, because if the body is off, if, if people are like in cardiac arrest, we know that they're clinically dead and there's no blood flowing to their brain, and yet they're having a conscious experience and they're having memories during that time. So that to me suggests that there is a consciousness, a mind existing independently of a functioning body. So if the body dies, okay. then maybe the consciousness doesn't die. So that's one way of looking at it. But I'll give another example. There are studies using uh, psychic mediums, and these are people who allege, they claim they can talk to dead people. Right. Now, there have been, rep there have been reports of this for the eight, throughout the ages, and some very talented mediums have been studied in the 1800s. One is named Mrs. Piper. She was a famous medium who the famous Harvard psychologist William James studied her and said he, could, he couldn't understand how she did it, but she, had, she seemed to have abilities. More recently, there have been controlled scientific studies, and there are only two of them that are in peer-reviewed uh, published journals, but they, they exist, and I think more and more studies will come out, which suggest that me some mediums are able to get information about a dead person that they shouldn't know. And these studies are done over the phone, and all the medium is told is the first name of the dead person, and that and the medium is able to get information that they shouldn't have known through ordinary means, which is very remarkable, but it's suggesting that maybe the dead person's consciousness hasn't disappeared and that the medium is just somehow talented and is able to pick up the signal, so to speak. If her brain's like an antenna, then like the, the deceased person's consciousness is out there and it's just a matter of picking it up with the antenna brain. Oh man. Kind of makes me think about the fact that, you know, well, when it comes to the spirit world, that it is true that we're communicating with them, but as you were saying, it's an antenna that we're connecting with them. Now, see, this goes a little deeper now. Yeah, it does, Mark. I think you're opening up something. You sure are? You making <laughs> You going okay. Yeah, Mark going to make us um, start questioning. But see, I'm not a religious. Um, I wouldn't consider myself spiritual religion. I, I do believe in God. But I don't battle on that. But yeah, this gonna open this gonna open up some questions. It really is. I'm enjoying this. But because we you you discovering a lot of evidence. So is there any evidence for past lives? You know, some people feel that they came from another world, and I have heard. And I'm like, okay, now you really you really going overboard. There's no way you could have been back then. And now you're here. Is that possible? Well, if you had asked me this before I got into my research, I would have said that that is a totally crazy idea, that there's no way, because once we once our body dies, that's the end of our consciousness. There can't be any way that the consciousness could continue, especially to another body. Right. 
but I, in in chapter 11 of my book, I, I show the evidence which challenges the old way I used to think. And now if you ask me, I would say that it's, it's, it, it is more likely than not that the consciousness can continue into a different body. So the way that I think about this, the, the best evidence that I've seen is from the University of Virginia, actually, in their Division of Perceptual Studies. This is in the med school at UVA. They study for the last 50 years, they've looked at children who have memories of a life that's not theirs. And usually the children are very young, between the ages of two and five years old. So you wouldn't expect a two or three-year-old to be talking about details of a previous life. And sometimes the children have preferences that don't make sense, like they crave alcohol or tobacco. They, have, they, they just talk about things that, are not, that they've never been exposed to. And in the most compelling cases, what they describe in the previous life is verified as being an accurate person, like a real person who existed and died by the researchers. Um, and, and in even more compelling cases to me, and these are, it's, it's pretty crazy. Sometimes the children have physical deformities in their body and birthmarks that match the way that they describe dying in the previous life. And in the most compelling cases, the researchers are able to find a person that actually did die in the exact way that the children described. So to me, if you look at that evidence, and some is better than others, but there are some really, really strong cases, the only way that I can think of explaining that is if the child actually is like a continued consciousness from someone who used to be in a different body. Okay. Um, I mean, well, children... I mean, I'm thinking of children's memories. Um, so that can be a sign of reincarnation, basically, Mark. Yes, yes. And that's what the researchers at the University of Virginia have also uh, basically said is, is a reasonable explanation for how this is happening, is that it's – so here, here's a way to think about it. It's a really – it's a helpful analogy for me, is if you think of reality to be like a stream of water, a big stream of water, where water – represents in our analogy consciousness and each of us is like a whirlpool in that stream if we're all we're just whirlpools like having a localized experience in that stream <clears throat> then we're all just made of water we're just made of consciousness what happens when the whirlpool stops being a whirlpool the water just dissolves into the broader stream and that's sort of like when the physical body dies the consciousness doesn't die it just transitions into the broader stream. Say the water turns into another whirlpool. So it was one whirlpool, it dissolved, and then became another one. It's like recycling the water. That is just a very simplistic way to think about maybe how reincarnation could work. Wow. I really get to the point, like I say, if you just never had that past life memory or if you don't personally believe in them, there's still good reason to explore the mysteries of your own psyche. And one thing about we always think, especially when it comes to children, that they share a great imagination, but mm, from the way Mark is telling it, maybe it's not imaginative at all. But we're going to take a short commercial break. We're going to come back with Mark because this conversation is not over. It's, it's just feel like it's beginning. So don't touch that dial. We'll definitely be right back after this commercial listen my life changed because someone was there to get me to use drugs 
no one can understand. Whether or not they've struggled with addiction themselves, people seem to think that having someone who will listen is going to help make it better. I'm realizing that I... I need help. I'm listening. I need help. I'm realizing that I think that having someone who will listen is going to help make it better. Whether or not they've struggled with addiction themselves, people seem to understand. No one can get me to use drugs. My life changed because someone was there to listen. One in seven Americans will struggle with addiction during their lifetime. Want to know how you can help? Go to heretolisten.com for tips and tools to help turn addiction around. A public service announcement brought to you by the Ad Council. All right, we're back here with Mark Gober, who is the author of A Wonderful Inch Upside Down Thinking, which will change how you look at everything. This is not what they're teaching in science class at all, baby. You going to have to take a longer ride. And if you're listening to the replay, spin it around and make sure you share that with others who need to hear this. Yeah, a lot of professors going to be upset, but they definitely, you getting your information, all your negative with this one today. Now, Mark, how the mainstream thinking, basically, because we don't went into evidence for past lives. We, Mark has the evidence for telepathic abilities. You name it. It's all in the book, baby. So read it. You'll get the information at the end. But, Mark, how could mainstream thinking be so off base? I I ask myself this question every day because I we've talked about just a little bit of the evidence on the phone and it's it, that alone is pretty amazing. How is it if there's so much evidence that scientists haven't talked about this much? Like why didn't we learn about this in school if this is part of our reality? I think that this is what tends to happen just throughout cycles of history when there's a new idea that challenges old belief systems. It takes a long time for people to adjust. And it sounds crazy at first. So here's a good example, germ theory, which is the idea that there are microscopic bacteria that can make you sick. That was a completely crazy idea a long time ago. But then what happened? We, discussed, we came up with a microscope, and we were able to see that these little critters exist, even though our eyes can't see them. And now we all accept that bacteria can make us sick and can even kill somebody. But think about how crazy that was to people a long time ago. You're like, it's like you think of bacteria, I can't even see it, and you think it can kill me? That was totally nuts. Now it's accepted. So what we're talking about here is something very similar, where we're talking about non-physical things, a consciousness that's, that doesn't seem like it, it matches our everyday experiences with what, what we see with our eyes, and yet there's scientific evidence that shows that it's real. So I think it takes time to adjust to these things, um, but I, I'll make a, a comparison, which is what Galileo faced in the 1700s. What he was showing was that, wait a second, the Earth isn't at the center of the solar system. Actually, we revolve around the sun. That was really controversial, and the church did not like Galileo for that. He was convicted of heresy, but he had his evidence for all of this, for this idea in his telescope because he was looking in the sky and was able to, to show reasoning for his theory. What he found is that many clergymen would not look in his telescope to see the evidence. They wouldn't even look. And what, they, what I've found in my research is that we have something very similar right now. There's all this evidence that you and I are discussing today, and many smart scientists who are really, really smart, they just haven't even looked at the evidence, and they won't look at the evidence. 
So one of the many reasons I decided to write an end to upside down thinking is to basically create for the general public their look into the telescope, so to speak, so that people who want to know, it's all the information is there. And hopefully some scientists will look too. Why we got to get out because everyone feels that if everyone's doing it, it, it got to be okay. And I think to me, mainstream is just filled with so many potholes. And we can even, it's mostly, of course, the media, the government, and our friends who, who basically tell us what to think. Everybody's up in front of you telling you, preaching to you, this is what you should do. It's almost like we become robotic. Yeah, completely. Completely. And I, I think I was probably part of that before, but I, I think I always had questions about, well, are we doing it right? What am I missing? I just didn't know where to look. But it was when I became exposed to the science where I said, oh, wow, there's this whole other part of reality that <clears throat> we're not being taught about and seems to exist. And look, if it exists, then our science needs to incorporate it. Our medicine does. Just the way we live and, our, and function in society it should be based on what the reality actually is. Well, I'm hoping they incorporate after getting this book and that this message go farther than just this radio show as of today because this is good information that, like I said, nobody's teaching you this. Everything is not in a book. And believe me, everything is not in a book. But in your opinion, how would this new line of thinking actually change people's lives? Well, I think, if first of all, if we all have psychic abilities, even if they're really subtle, then think about how yeah. our performance in, in everyday life, it could be improved if we learned how to harness these things. So I think hopefully science can better understand how they work and how people can use them. But maybe we can use our intuition more if our brain is really like kind of an antenna. If we learned how to improve the functioning of our antenna, then maybe we can improve our intuition, which could be very helpful to people. To me, the biggest implication is, is a, it's a very grand one, which is our society is not in good shape right now. I mean, it just takes five minutes of listening to the news any, on any given day. We have a lot of problems in society. And now with my new perspective and after looking at all the science, what seems to be the case, going back to this analogy that we're all connected in this stream of consciousness together, is that we're not actually separate from each other. Even though we have different bodies, the consciousness that is at the basis of everything is the same consciousness, meaning that we're not actually separate. At the most basic level, we're not separate. So if that is actually true, then there are big questions about how we treat one another. Does it make sense to hurt another person or to harm another person if that person is just another version of you? No, it's not even rational to do harm to anybody. So like, think about that idea, what that would mean for how people are treating each other in the world and many of the, the, the conflicts we see between nations. To me, we see those conflicts because there is an assumption that we're all separate. But to me, the science is actually challenging that assumption and saying that we're connected. So this is major for our planet. I think hopefully, I mean, for the survival of the species possibly, is to recognize that we're interconnected and act accordingly. Boom, drop the mic. Mark said it just as clear as day. So what are the implications for what it means to be human? Well, I would have told you before my research that what it means to be human is that we are physical bodies that have a right. consciousness. 
So like, right, I'm a body first and foremost, and consciousness just comes out of my head. Now I say it's the reverse, is that I am a consciousness first and foremost that is experiencing the physical world through the vehicle of a body, which is a totally different perspective on what it means to be a human being. I mean, I had to, I had to punt, I had to punt a little bit on that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's heavy. It's heavy. It is. So, as a whole, how might we view life and death differently, though? Well, I mean, if if under my old thinking, and this is the again, this is the mainstream thinking, which is that we are a body that has a consciousness. So when the body dies, when the brain is off. There's no consciousness anymore. That means when you're dead, it's over. That's it. That's what, that's what the mainstream thinking is. <laughs> what I would argue is more likely to be true based on the research is that when the physical body dies, the consciousness doesn't die with it. The consciousness transitions into a different state. And we've talked about a few examples of this where near-death experience have no mm-hmm. brain functioning and they're still having memories. We have mediums who are able to talk to dead people and get accurate information. We have children who have memories of a life that, of someone who died. These are all suggesting that the consciousness that we have doesn't just die when our body dies. So that has huge implications for how we think about our, our own life. If all of a sudden this isn't – it's not the, the old adage of you have one life to live, what if that's not true? How would we actually live? This is major stuff. It is. This is really. This is. This is deep. Now, this is going to take you out your element here. But now, when we get into science, what are the implications for science, medicine, artificial intelligence, and even Elon Musk, Neuralink startup? Hmm. Well, the, the the short answer is that the implications are major. Um, but if we think about the mainstream perspective again, which is that. We have a consciousness, and it just comes out of our brain, and it has no impact on the world around us. It's just a byproduct of the brain. That means that all – which is the conventional view. That means that all of our scientific equations and our medical theories are saying that consciousness is not affecting anything. But what if what we're talking about is true and that consciousness is actually the foundation of, of the physical world? That means that all of our scientific equations and our medical theories have to shift. So this is major. Also, if we think about medicine, I described the studies earlier at the University of Virginia on children who have memories of a previous life, and in some cases their bodies actually deformed and in a way that aligns with their previous life. That suggests mm-hmm. that something beyond their genetics, something beyond their genes, and something beyond their environmental factors is having an effect on their body. So the researchers call it a third factor. Current medicine does not incorporate a third factor. It just says all that matters is our genetics and our environment, and that informs everything. What if there's something else? We don't know exactly what it is. Is it a consciousness? Is it an energy? But our medicine's going to have to figure that out. So that's, that's medicine. You mentioned artificial intelligence. This is a really hot topic. So the show Westworld is a really popular one where, you know, basically the machines, they become conscious, they develop memories and feelings, and then they try to take over the world. That's just a very brief summary. 
but the the assumption in that show and other people who are are fearing artificial intelligence is that well once we make a machine that is complex enough it will become conscious somehow what i'm arguing in my book and others are agreeing is that consciousness is not coming from anything physical consciousness is actually preceding the physical so if that's true could we make a machine that spits out a consciousness i would argue that we can't i would argue that what the best we can do is make a machine that is very computationally strong like it's a really good computer but it's not going to have feelings so i think we have to rethink artificial intelligence and some of the fears that people have we definitely need to be careful about how we program the machines because we could program a machine to do very bad things but could the machine on its own have desires and feelings machines will not be able to have feelings because we can't create consciousness through a machine Does that make no. sense? It, it does. It's going to take, it takes time to register, but it does make, it does make sense. This is a, this is a lot, like you said, and in order for you to really grasp it, we'll have to have a whole another show with Mark on this, baby, because Mark <laughs> is, um, like I said, he's giving us all these nuggets at one time, and I know our show is only for a amount of time, so, you know, if you, like I said, if you listen to the replay, make sure you share it, because this is information that needs to be heard worldwide. Now, speaking of world, what are the implications for world peace, Mark? Well, earlier we talked about how we might treat each other if we're actually connected and we're not so separate. So to me, the ultimate solution for a more peaceful planet is one that appreciates this reality, that we're not actually separate and that it's not rational to do harm to other people. The Another term that comes up a lot is the term of altruism, which is how people like to help each other. That's a, a difficult concept in, in biological circles. There are all kinds of theories on why, why anyone would be altruistic, because in some ways it's all about survival of the fittest, but in other ways you need to help other people in order to survive on your own. But under this idea that you and I are talking about where we're all connected, if you are me at the most basic level, then if somebody's altruistic, if someone likes to help another, that's actually being selfish because you're helping yourself. So that idea to me of it's, it's helpful to yourself to help others, like fundamentally, that could shift everything on the planet. Others, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's rewarding to help others instead of being um, selfish. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, to- totally. But when I think about when I think about world peace, I, I think about this world poverty and this widening gap between like the rich and the poor, which are kind of like serious threats to world peace. That I feel that could be probably corrected by maybe peaceful applications of of certain technologies. I, I don't know if I'm going in that right direction, but that's that's how I take it because I mean. We we've been through it all. The real threats of war over over supply over shrinking supplies for many of years. I mean, um, I mean, I'll just be thinking off the top of my head, but this is where I'm I'm going with it when I thought of your world peace and the implications that we could actually have. But hopefully, 
will actually get to that point in life. I mean, that's been a talked about subject for decades to have world peace, and I'm hoping that we actually can get there one day. Now, what are the implications for happiness, love, and beauty? Hmm. Well, I think if if these ideas are true, then I think people could be much happier to realize that that life doesn't end with this individual body and this individual life. And um, I think that it takes kind of the material focus of things off a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll go through I'll go through an experience that's described. This is part of the near death experience. I mentioned it earlier, and this is maybe if if someone asks me what's the most important thing you've learned, Mark, this might be it. So this is it's called the life review in the near death experience, where the person is you know they're 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 clinically dead or their brain is like severely impaired, and yet they're having this life review where they're experiencing their whole life in a flash. What they report sometimes, and this is the really important point, is let's just say mm-hmm. that it's um, let's say let's say it's Bob and Jane again. Bob is having his life review, and during his life he harmed Jane. During the life review, Bob will sometimes experience that event through Jane's eyes, as if he were Jane, and he'll feel the pain that Jane felt. And then he comes back into his body, and what he cares about is not about material things anymore. He cares about how he treats people because he sees that in the life review, part of the meaning of his life is about seeing how he will act towards other people. And it's not about how big his house is or what kind of car he has. It's about how he treated people during his life. So just think about that. If that's a real thing, if there's a life review where people, where we're judging ourselves after this life to see how we treated other people, that is a world changer. It sure is. A big world changer from an evolutionary um, standpoint, to me, beauty can make us happy because, of course, attractiveness, it implies health, which in turn implies strong reproductive capabilities, which allows us to attract more successful mates. But then where does all the beauty go? What else do you have left? I mean, when I think of beauty, it's so much beauty around us. We got the sky. We, We maybe have a church. Maybe a simple lunch, hope, life, just a little inch closer to perfection, you know. And I, I feel that as long as we find anything beautiful, we feel that we have not yet exhausted what life has to offer. Yep, I agree with you. I agree with you. And I have a give now versus how I used to think about those concepts of love and beauty. I remember this when I studied psychology at Princeton. There were questions about, mm-hmm. well, how do we explain how do we explain love from an evolutionary standpoint? Like lust, that makes sense because that will encourage people to reproduce, and that right that makes total sense. But is love actually necessary? And some people would say, well, yeah, you need it because then you'll take better care of people, and that helps you survive to reproduce. And there are theories for it, but it's not as compelling as the reason for lust, where that's like that's required. So this is a new perspective that I have on the concept of love. What people report, again, in near-death experiences and other types of mystical states, whether it's a psychedelic experience or meditation, they talk about this feeling of unconditional love and that they are aligning with their true self as this consciousness that's not tied to the body and that unconditional love is actually the natural state of being. So I now 
think of love as potentially our natural state rather than something that we like achieve. It's just the natural state that's typically hidden from us. So there's a philosopher that I think is an amazing teacher named Rupert Spira out of the UK who thinks about love from this perspective of what we're all connected as part of the same consciousness where our natural state is loving. When you love another person, he views that as the recognition that you are the same, but you're seeing it in another person. He sees beauty as recognizing that you and an object are the same, but it's just an object rather than a person, so you call it beauty. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. So you also, Mark, I hear you have a podcast. What's your podcast about? Well, I'm I'm working on the podcast. It is not released yet, but it's on all of these topics. And whereas in my book, I quote scientists and practitioners who talk about these things, in my podcast, I have interviews with these scientists. So that will be out in a few months, hopefully. Uh, it will be posted on my website and other typical podcast sources. So my website will have all the updates, which is just markgober.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com. And uh, I think it will be really helpful to people because some people like to read and other people like to hear from the scientists themselves. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That's definitely going to be more helpful. You you write about that. More people love to actually hear it, read and become so tired. So I'm not going to lie. You can, you can read all day, but then you become tired. But just to hear it from somebody else's mouth sounds much better. That's why I love what I do. So people actually hear it instead of reading it. But that does not deter you away from getting Mark's book and into upside down thinking. We're not, no, you're not going to end up doing that. So, Mark, tell us a couple of places that they can purchase your book from. Thank you. So my website is myname.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com, and that has links for all sorts of sites that where you can purchase my book. But my book is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and many bookstores. Yes, and that's Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can find Mark Gober. He's on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. So please make sure you you pick up the book. You can get it as an audio or a hardcover, which I love hardcovers, but just make sure you have it on your shelf, and that'll be a great gift to pass off to someone else. But before I leave you, the truth of the day is this from my friend and former guest, Mary Ellen Stignovich. Use all of your senses to appreciate the fullness of life. All your misperceptions from your mind, heart, and spirit can be balanced through utilizing all of your senses. Use your breathing to calm your mind. Allow essential oils to soothe your spirit and hold your loved ones close to heal your heart. Through becoming logical, sensible, and practical, you can make balanced decisions to lead a full and joyful life. Budget your choices to make the most of your resources as this will extend your life memory. Today, utilize all five of your senses to make choices, decisions to enjoy life. Enjoy the day, and do not forget to get my friend Mark Gober's book, and end to upside down thinking. I'll see you next time on the Bright Side with Technicians. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Bright Side with Technicia. If you like what you heard, tell your dad, mother, cousin, uncle, whomever. Be sure to check out the archive section at www.brightsidewithtk.com.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.